Our sermon text for today is found in Mark chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. We are every week seeking to move the ball further down the field little by little as we climb this enormous mountain that is the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we have sermon outlines available. If you did not receive a sermon outline in your way, on your way in, would you raise your hand, keep your, your, your hands up, and Benji will be glad to get you a sermon outline. In the Pew Bibles in front of you, you will find this scripture reading in page 785. This is the word of the Lord. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. A true message is always true regardless of who the messenger is. You may dislike a person who bears you news, but at the end of the day, if the news are true, that is what matters. Pathological liars, deceivers, scammers can sometimes tell the truth. You know the saying, right? Even a broken clock is right twice a day. God establishes truth, so it exists regardless of the messenger. Unless, unless the messenger is the message. The gospel is not simply a message from Jesus. The gospel is not simply a message that Jesus came to share. The gospel is the message about Jesus. When we receive the gospel, we receive, we receive Jesus. So, one of the reasons why Jesus had a public ministry was to prove that he was the Son of God, to show that he really was able to defeat our great enemy, Satan, to show that he really could obey the law perfectly on our behalf, to show us that he indeed is the gospel. Today we're going to see Jesus' wilderness temptation. And how the trial and hardship were necessary to prepare him for ministry. The trials and hardships were necessary for the proclamation of the gospel to be completely true. His time in the wilderness validated not just his message, but his identity. The wilderness was a test, and Jesus passed it. 
with flying colors. Therefore, when Jesus speaks, we listen. So here's a guiding thought for today. God tests, equips, and empowers those he calls, including his own son. So let's consider first verses 12 and 13, Jesus' desert temptation. Mark opens verse 12 in typical Markan fashion. Fast change of scenery. His favorite word, immediately, giving us a sense of urgency. God was on a mission to prepare his son for the ministry he was called to. Now, one of the benefits of preaching verse by verse, week after week, is that we don't miss important details in the broader context of the passage. We just heard two weeks ago that the Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. Such a peaceful picture, isn't it? Such a picture of a spirit who comforts as he affirms. But now in verse 12, the spirit doesn't suggest to Jesus, you should go to the wilderness. It's, it's not just a nudge. The Spirit drives Christ out into the wilderness. This is unexpected, isn't it? The Father speaks from heaven during His baptism, declaring His love for the Son. The Spirit descends like a dove. This sounds like the time for a coronation. Let us go to Jerusalem. Let us take Jesus... To the throne of David. Let us crown him. It is time. Th this sounds like the time to capitalize. On how awesome. Jesus' baptism was. Certainly much of modern evangelical ministry. Would embrace that philosophy. But Jesus' wisdom. And the wisdom of the spirit. Is greater than ours. Jesus, you are famous. Go make a name for yourself. But instead, the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. It's strange, isn't it? So far, right, we're reading the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, we have seen virtually no autonomy from Jesus. He showed up in the Jordan, and he was baptized by John. Passive language. Immediately after his baptism, he is driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit. Again, passive language. He then spends 40 days in the desert being tempted by Satan. Again, passive language. But why? 
why was it necessary for Jesus to go through all of this? Why was it necessary for Jesus to experience even the hardship of the wilderness? And friends, this is a lesson for us because Jesus is our model. Jesus is our example. And all these things are necessary because pruning is part of the necessary preparation for Christian ministry. And it was necessary for Jesus to be sharpened by the trial and hardship. And since it was necessary for Jesus, so it is necessary for you and I. First Peter 4, 12 through 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Same purpose for Jesus in the desert. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So why is it necessary for Christ to suffer? Well, one of the reasons is so that we would identify with his suffering. If we don't share in Christ's suffering, we will not share in his glory. But if we share in his suffering, we know that we will, we will also share in his glory. The call to the Christian ministry is a call that every Christian receives. This is not unique to pastors. This is not unique to deacons. Every Christian ought to be equipped for Christian ministry. And if that is the case, the call to every Christian is a call for preparation, through hardship, through suffering. Along with this call is the call to suffer. The great privilege every Christian has to suffer for the sake of Christ. Now, is every suffering suffering for the sake of Christ? Is the suffering for the sake of Christ exclusive for the martyrs and, and for the suffering missionaries? And for those who are persecuted in their families for their faith. Friend, I would submit to you that suffering for Christ involves every suffering. It, it involves the suffering of physical ailments. It involves the suffering of parenting. It involves the suffering of hard labor. It involves the suffering of relationships. Because... Satan has a purpose for all of our sufferings. He wants for us to, in face of suffering, give up on our faith. So every suffering is a suffering for faith. It's a suffering for Christ. So when we suffer, we rejoice. Because we know that as we persevere through suffering, Satan's purpose is defeated and God's purpose is accomplished. 
The purpose of God in putting us through suffering is so that we would destroy our confidence in self and we would deposit our confidence on Him and Him alone. We, we have no reason to trust us or to think that we are too strong. But we have every reason to know that Christ is strong in every way. Christian ministry is often romanticized. And although there is a very sweet aspect to Christian ministry, we see here the work of the Spirit is to lead Christ to a place of suffering. Friends, when we come to God, we come to the refiner's fire. We come just as we are. You know the great hymn, Just As I Am? But that hymn can only be sung once. Because once we come to God, we're transformed. God shapes us through suffering into the image of the suffering servant of Christ himself. He was acquainted with suffering. And to be acquainted with Christ is to also be acquainted with suffering. So if you're walking with the Lord and it feels like you've been put through the ringer, that simply means the Father loves you. He loves you so that He won't let you remain the way you are. And He will teach you who He is through suffering. But did Jesus need to be refined? Why did Jesus need to go through this trial? Isn't he God? Isn't he perfect? Did he need to perfect his perfection? Why did Jesus need to be tried and tempted in the desert? Well, let me answer this question in two ways. First, in the wilderness, Jesus displayed. He did not become the Son of God, but he displayed that he truly was the Son of God. We, we hear that affirmation from God, don't we? This is my beloved Son. But here in the desert, Jesus puts to action that which was previously in words. This was his purpose in coming to earth. Only the Son of God could resist the temptation of Satan to the end. Satan is a powerful being. He has authority over much in the physical and in the spiritual realm. Just read the opening chapters of Job. He has been around for a long time. Mere humans are no match to him. Even the archangel Michael. As him and Satan were fighting over the body of Moses. We're told in the book of Jude. The archangel answers to Satan these words. The Lord rebuke you. Our first father, Adam, once also faced off with Satan. But unlike Jesus, Adam's circumstances were perfect. Adam was not found in the wilderness. Instead, Adam was with Eve. 
a companion. He was in the most perfect garden. Adam wasn't hungry or thirsty. Adam was among was not among wild animals, but animals were subject to him. And yet, when tempted, Adam failed. But Jesus, being in hardship, in a hard, harsh place, alone, hungry, threatened. Even in light of all of this, Jesus succeeded. Adam was tasked with protecting the garden. It was his job, his responsibility to crush the head of the serpent and cast it out as far from the garden as possible. But instead, Adam listens to the serpent. And he chooses to obey the serpent rather than God. But unlike Adam, Jesus does not become swayed by the distorted teaching of the serpent. He instead refutes the serpent with biblical truth, as we learn in the other Gospels. And for the first time in all of history, Satan tempts a man. And the man resists. For the first time in all of history, Satan tempts a man, and the man wins. 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. In Adam's sin, we all sinned. But in Jesus' victory, many received victory. He destroyed the tempter, the God of this world, his Faithfulness and obedience disarmed the devil and rendered him powerless. Colossians 2. Friends, our great adversary, he who would seek to incessantly accuse us, he who would desire to devour us like a prowling lion, is defeated. Jesus won the battle. A final blow would still come as Jesus took on the cross. And Jesus would finally, once and for all, defeat Satan. He was crushed and his ability to deceive the nations was destroyed. The evidence of that is that we have believed the gospel. Satan has not deceived us. Jesus won, and in him we have victory. Pastor John Piper says, in the end, Satan serves to magnify the power, wisdom, love, grace, mercy, patience, and wrath of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I love internet memes may spend an inordinate amount of time looking through them sometimes. There was a meme that began uh, as a Twitter hashtag in 2020 called, Tell me who you are without telling me who you are. So things like, 
tell me you are a mom without telling me you are a mom. Or tell me you are a Christian without telling me you are a Christian. So the idea behind the meme was that you could say, these are my life situations and here is how it shows who I am. This is precisely what Jesus is doing in the desert. Tell me you are the son of God without telling me you are the son of God. Only someone who is in nature, God, can defeat Satan. This is a good reminder for us, isn't it? Jesus did not deceive Satan because of his circumstances, but because of his faithfulness. Adam had the perfect circumstances, and yet he fell. David fell into sin when he was most successful. Solomon, his son, pursued his many wives and concubines because he was so prosperous. We can't think that once our lives change, we will then obey God. We can't think that our faithlessness is a result of our circumstances. Once my schedule clears up, I'll start attending church regularly. Once I get a raise, I'll start giving faithfully. Once I'm older, I'll start serving the church. Towards the end of my life, I'll make a commitment to Christ. Friends, the perfect circumstances is an ever-elusive concept. We all live amid sin and brokenness. Life is the wilderness for us. And the time to obey God is right now. In the circumstances we find ourselves today. He who is faithful in little will be faithful over much. Even the wilderness calls us to faithfulness. Because the Lord gives grace in the wilderness. So it was necessary for Jesus to go through the wilderness so that he could show, prove that he is indeed the Son of God. But it was also necessary for Jesus to go through the wilderness because in the wilderness, Jesus embodied the identity of his people. The number 40 is certainly significant in the Bible. Israel was tested in the desert for 40 years. Yet, just like Adam, they failed to be found faithful when tested. Israel chose the way of grumbling and unbelief. Therefore, an entire generation was left to die in the wilderness. They did not enter the kingdom. Not even Moses. The promised land. Jesus here is representing the faithful remnant of Israel. Just like in his baptism where he took on symbolically the sins of his people. Here he is actually obeying on behalf of his people. 
This wasn't an easy task. As a man, Jesus relied on the power of the Spirit in order to accomplish obedience. Hebrews 5.8, one of the most puzzling verses in the Bible. Although he was a son, God, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Man, very puzzling, isn't it? In what way did Jesus learn obedience? Well, he did not learn anything that he did not know. He learned obedience in the sense that he experienced as a man the process of choosing to obey God day in and day out. And how did he do that? He did that by the power of the Spirit through suffering. Jesus didn't come on earth as a grown man to go up on the cross and die. He came as a baby. And throughout his life, he learned to obey God. Throughout his life, he fulfilled the righteousness that was required to make him a perfect sacrifice for us. Jesus learned obedience because we didn't. Jesus learned obedience because we chose and we choose disobedience. Jesus' identification with his people is real. He wasn't God pretending to be a man. He was fully man just like you and I. And as a man, he suffered in order to obey God. Jesus put himself through suffering and humiliation in order to accomplish the obedience that is required of you and I. Romans 14, verse 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. We are called to obey God, but we haven't. A mere look at the law of God indicts us in every way. We will never meet the requirements God demands of us. So, God in the flesh met them for us. Does this sound too good to be true? Well, it is too good. But it is true. So you're called to simply believe. Believe that Jesus obeyed in your place. The call of the gospel is a call of faith. As Christians, we hear that Old Testament saying, God is not interested in our sacrifices. He is interest, interested in mercy. He's interested in our love. He's interested in our devotion to him. He's interested in hearing us say, I believe you. So the sacrifice that God requires of us is a sacrifice of faith. And friends, nothing is more transformative than faith. Nothing will transform us more than if we say, God, I believe you. I trust you. Shape me into the image of Christ. We'll say more about the gospel in just a little bit. 
Jesus, now let us consider Jesus' gospel proclamation in verses 14 and 15. In verse 14, we see the end of John, John the Baptist's or John the Baptizer, his ministry. He was arrested and would later be killed for his faith, as we'll see in Mark 6. This is, this is a transition. The old is passing away. The new is coming. The old covenant, along with its last prophets, is passing. The new covenant is here with Christ. As John's ministry ends, Jesus' ministry begins. But John's fate would also be Jesus' fate. Jesus was a preacher. He came to Galilee proclaiming, preaching the gospel. But Jesus' proclamation of the gospel was backed up by Jesus' righteousness. This message Jesus was bringing was radical. But so was his life. Radical obedience, radical self-control, radical humility. And all of this validated the message he preached. This is true in our own lives as well, isn't it? The way we live validates the message we preach. First Peter 3 tells wives, if you're married to an unbelieving husband, you should win them over without a word according to your conduct. Not that the gospel is not necessary, but that the life lived, transformed by the gospel, validates the message that is preached. Our neighbors are watching us. Our children are watching us. The world is watching us. I know that even in our denomination in recent days, many have been disappointed that some who preach the gospel have brought shame to the gospel because of significant sin. And every time someone who preaches the gospel shames the gospel, we should be disappointed. But never, ultimately, because Jesus never disappoints. And the message of the gospel depends not on men, but on Christ. The word gospel simply means good news. Notice in verse 14, again, how Mark describes his message. He says, the gospel is the message of God. Friends, the gospel is the message that is from God and not from man. So, the gospel must be defined by God. It should not be altered. It should not be manipulated. It should simply be shared. My function here is one of a herald. I proclaim a message that is not mine. Your function is to receive this message as though God was speaking to you. So, if you, if in any way you come under conviction this morning to disregard this message is to disregard God. 
as long as I proclaim the message of God faithfully, your responsibility to respond is not before men, and it is not before me, but before God. But also, because the gospel is from God, the gospel is powerful. Not only do you need to respond to the gospel, God empowers you, enables you to respond to the gospel. Jesus could have started his ministry with signs and wonders. And he will do that soon. Next week, we're going to start seeing Jesus in action. But he doesn't start his ministry with signs and wonders. Instead, he starts his ministry with a proclamation. A proclamation of the gospel. Signs and wonders play an important role in the New Testament. But friends, at the end of the day, Jesus emphasized the preaching of the gospel. So, are you living a godless life? Are you living a powerless life? Do you feel dead spiritually? Are you trapped in sin? Are you finding no way to rid yourself of brokenness? You need God. You need God's message. You need God's gospel. As central, we emphasize the preaching of the gospel. Our purpose statement says, we exist to proclaim the gospel for the hope of the lost, the edification of the church, and the glory of God in Christ. The reason why we emphasize the proclamation of the gospel at our church is because Jesus emphasized the proclamation of the gospel in his ministry. When the gospel is proclaimed, the message of God is proclaimed. One evidence that you love God is the fact that you love hearing the gospel proclaimed. Not necessarily that you like my proclamation of the gospel, but that you love the fact that the gospel is proclaimed. In the book of Philippians, Paul says, even if you proclaim the gospel out of rivalry, may the gospel be proclaimed. I rejoice when the gospel is proclaimed. We must rejoice when the gospel is proclaimed. So after you hear the message of the gospel preached, do you tend to be critical? Or do you tend to rejoice? Are you easily edified by the preaching of the gospel? Do you find yourself encouraged by the preaching of the gospel? Does the preaching of the gospel remain with you after you hear it? Does it govern your life? Does it govern your thoughts? This is also why we love to have our children here. I hear my baby girl in the back all the time. This is why we love to have our children here in the service. Hearing the proclamation of the gospel. Because by hearing the gospel, they will learn to love the gospel. Just yesterday, I read someone saying on social media that children 
should be allowed to hear the preaching of the gospel as long as they don't distract others. I cannot imagine our Lord Jesus Christ saying such a thing. At Central, we don't mind when children get a little loud, a little fussy in the service. Because we don't want to be a hindrance to them hearing the gospel. We're mature. We know how to deal with distractions. They need to hear the gospel. They need to believe. They need to be transformed. So when we hear our children in the service, we say, praise God. Thank you, Lord, that our church has children. That's my daughter right there. That our church has children who, who, who love to be here, who are hearing your word. Couldn't have timed this better. Now, look at verse 15. What is the content of this message? Jesus begins proclaiming his gospel, and he says, The time is fulfilled. God had a plan to send Jesus forth from the very beginning. Jesus' coming was not plan B. It was plan A. From before the foundation of the world. I know that this is a puzzling thought because Jesus came because sin entered the world. And yet, God in his sovereign plan was never reactive. God purposed to send Jesus from the very beginning. His coming was the fulfillment of time. Galatians 4.4, I believe this is the first message I preached to this church as your pastor. But when the, full, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. All of history points to Christ, forward and backwards, to His coming. He is the fulfillment of every prophecy, every promise. And all of the time, all of time, points to him. Every prophecy, every sacrifice, every king, the law, the psalms, the prophets, the writings, the old covenant. All of history, all of these things were being fulfilled when Jesus said, the time has come. Jesus goes on to say in verse 15 again, the kingdom of God is at hand. Meaning, the kingdom of God is here. It has arrived. He did, he, and how did it get here? Jesus brought it. But what is the kingdom of God? In, in his little book, Gospel and Kingdom, Australian theologian Graeme Goldsworthy summarizes the kingdom of God this way. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. By the way, if you are trying to understand the message of the Old Testament 
and, and how it comes together uh, with cohesion. I would recommend this book, uh, Gospel and Kingdom by Graeme Goldsworthy. Now, this book alone is very hard to find. I believe it's out of print in most places that you go look for it. But Graeme Goldsworthy does have a trilogy of books, and within this trilogy, one of the books is Gospel and Kingdom. If you enjoy reading at all, you should read this book. The kingdom of God is not an abstract concept, but it is the rule of God in the heart of God's people. The heart had always been a challenge for humanity. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But if the kingdom of God enters the heart of men, the heart of man can be transformed. Ezekiel 36, 26, the promise of the new covenant. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is the kingdom. This is the kingdom. Jesus depositing in us a transformed heart. A heart that follows not the law written on stones, but the law written in our hearts by the Spirit. A heart that enables us to obey God. Because just as Christ was led by the Spirit, we too can be led by the Spirit. This is the promise of transformation, friends. The message of the gospel is what we can truly is how we can truly be transformed. What sin have you struggled with all your life? What temptation has often overwhelmed you? What has kept you from coming to Christ? In what ways is your heart hardened towards God? God promises to overcome these problems by performing in you a spiritual heart transplant. And how does God do that? He gives us himself. I've been thinking a lot about weddings lately. Just two weeks ago, I was able to perform a wedding of friends in South Florida. About a month from today, I'm going to perform a wedding again of friends in Kentucky. This past Friday, my parents celebrated their 50th anniversary. Praise God. So why do people pursue weddings? Parties are nice. Friends are nice. Food is nice. But what makes a wedding special are not these things. We can do those things without a wedding. What makes a wedding special is that a groom gets a bride. And a bride gets a groom. Is that a husband finds a wife and a wife finds a husband. It is the relationship that makes 
a wedding special. And this is what makes the gospel special. The gospel initiates a relationship between us and Christ. When we receive the gospel, we receive Christ. We don't just receive the benefits of Christian morality. We don't just receive the benefits of Christian fellowship. We don't just receive the benefits of historical Christianity with its rich heritage. When we receive the gospel, we receive Christ. Our lives are not transformed on the outside. Our lives are transformed on the inside. And if we get Christ, what else do we need? James Edwards, a, a uh, commentator, by the way, much of my studies are guided by James Edwards in the Gospel of Mark. He says this, Jesus proclaimed the gospel, but he also was the gospel. The gospel is the message about Jesus, not just a message from Jesus. So friends, this is the offer that Jesus is making for you today. If you receive the gospel, you receive Christ. And along with Christ, you receive his obedience. Along with Christ, you receive his righteousness. Along with Christ, you receive his perfection. Along with Christ, you receive his kingdom. So those who receive the gospel are made one with Christ. And how can you receive the gospel today? Well, Jesus tells us as he finishes verse 15, repent and believe. That is the only way. The church is not made up of great, strong Christians who live out great morality, who live out great spiritual strength. The church is made up of weak men and women who were told, repent and believe. And that's what they did. To repent means to turn. You know, I made the wise decision of taking a job as a delivery pizza delivery man out of high school before a GPS was available. And God has given me a special gift. It's called the gift of opposite sense of direction. So as I attempted to deliver pizza in the mayhem that is Miami, I found myself doing U-turns all the time. That's what repentance is you realize that your sense of direction will lead you nowhere. So you turn. You turn from self-confidence to Christ-confidence. You say, if I keep going my way, I will walk merrily into hell. But if I turn to Christ, I'll live. And I'll live a life that is eternal. The call to repentance, the call to believe the message of the gospel. Friends, it is the only thing we can offer you. 
But this message is everything you need. You need to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior today. Do not delay. Do not wait for the perfect circumstances. Today is the day that you have guaranteed. Tomorrow is not assured. Today you must turn to Christ. If you would like to know more about what it means to turn to Christ, I would love to talk to you. I will be right here at the end of the service. Come talk to Brother Jeff. If somebody invited you to church, go talk to that person. Any of the members of our church are able to explain to you more clearly the gospel and how to respond to it. We would love to help you receive the gospel and be saved. Friends, we have great hope that our suffering Savior has accomplished all that there is to accomplish. So we rest in Him. May that be true of us today. Would you pray with me? Father, we declare that in and of ourselves we have no righteousness, no sense of direction. Lord, we would never find our way. But Jesus has told us to repent and believe. So we have done that. We pray, Father, for everyone in this room. Not just some. Not just someone. We pray, Lord, that your message of the gospel would prove to be efficient and would regenerate the heart regenerate the hearts of all of us may none of us perish we've heard the proclamation of the gospel may we now embrace it in faith lord we pray these things in the name of your son jesus christ